Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the ETF show. I'm Tom Bailey, ETF editor at Interactive Investor. On today's episode, we're joined all the way from St. Louis, Missouri, by Larry Swedrow. So Larry is Chief Research Officer at Buckingham Wealth Partners, but he's also a long-standing advocate of passive investment, and he's also a prolific author. He's written about a dozen books on investing, and most recently updated and republished one of his most popular, called The Incredible Shrinking Alpha, How to Be a Successful Investor Without Picking Winners. So let's start at the beginning. Simply put, there are two theories of investing, active and passive. Perhaps you can start by giving a, a brief overview of each each of these two theories and how they differ. And first, I want to make clear, it's not exactly a black or white issue. There are many shades of gray, and everyone's definition of passive can even be somewhat different. I'll try to explain it. I like the definition of active management, meaning that it includes individual security selection and or market timing and based upon individual human judgment, and therefore it cannot be replicated. Passive strategies are generally thought of as indexing strategies. So you own all of the stocks in an index, how it's constructed, stocks like the S&P 500, uh, and there's no individual security selection or market timing going on by the investor. However, uh, you could make the case, for example, that the S&P 500 is an active fund because it's not the top 500 stocks by market capitalization, like the Russell 1000 or Russell 2000 indices are purely market cap. There's actually a committee that makes a decision about which stocks to include. So that's, uh, you can see how the debate can uh, evolve there. And then I'll add one more issue. Let's imagine a fund, and there is a fund that sort of looks like this, but I'll keep it a bit simple. Let's call it the ultra large cap equal weighted fund. It owns the, let's say the 30 largest stocks and by market cap and it equal weights them, but it doesn't want to have to be trading every day because the weightings would change as prices move. So it uses only cash flows to rebalance as money is coming in, dividends come in, uh, et cetera. Uh, and if a stock leaves the top 30, uh, it won't sell it unless it could do so at a loss. It'll just stop buying it. Now, I would define that as a purely passive strategy. There's no market timing going on. There's no individual security selection going on. However, uh, there's no index called the equal weighted rebalance using cash flows index. So here you have a case of, I think the right way of defining passive is a universe that is defined. It is then implemented in a systematic, totally transparent and replicable way. And you see many of these smart beta, although I don't like that terms, or other ETFs uh, and funds run by families like dimensional fund advisors and others that are really passive, but some people will call them active because they are clearly active in defining their universe, but not in individual stock selection or market timing. So you very much focus on the idea of it being rules-based? Not only rules-based, but it has to be implemented in a systematic and transparent way. So some hedge fund may be a quantitative strategy, but it could not be replicated because it's not transparent. Uh, and you don't know if there's judgments going on because you can't replicate it. Uh, so those are the definitions I would apply systematic, meaning rules-based, transparent, and replicable. In your uh, newly updated book, The Incredible Shrinking Alpha, you list these various reasons why uh, our outperformance is increasingly hard to, to find, uh, or as you, alpha, as kind of the lingo is. One of the really interesting points I think you made is the idea that academics have been converting alpha into beta. I don't know if you could explain what it's meant by this. Prior to the middle 1960s, 
there really was no theory of finance in terms of asset pricing. Uh, there were no courses really taught or degrees given, I should say, in finance uh, because there was no theory. If you took a class in finance or investments, it was probably either in an accounting uh, program or maybe in an economics program. And then along came Bill Sharp and a few others who were generally given credit. They all worked at the same time to create what ultimately became called the CAPM or the Capital Asset Pricing Model, which gave us our first formal definition of the relationship between risk and return. Now, the CAPM was a single factor model. The single factor that was meant to, to explain returns is called beta. Beta is related to volatility, but it's not exactly. Beta is the measure of the risk of a security, a portfolio of securities, a mutual fund, relative to the risk of the overall market. So if you own a bunch of high-flying tech stocks, while the beta of the market by definition of one, your beta might be one and a half or let's say two. Uh, on the other hand, if you own a group of grocery stores or drug store chains that don't move as much with the economy, they're not as sensitive to economic cycle risk, then you might have a beta of 0.6. So what does that mean? If the market went up 10% and you have a beta of two, you should expect to get a return of 20%. If you got 15 in the old world before the cap M, you could claim 5% alpha. You outperform the market by 5%. But in this new world where risk is defined by your beta, if you weren't 15, the market gave you 20. So your alpha was actually minus 5% because you had a beta of two which meant you should have gotten 20. So the stocks that you chose only got your 15, you underperformed. On the other hand, if you got uh, had a beta of uh, six, uh, a 0.6, and the, you earned eight, even though you underperformed the market by 2%, you have clearly outperformed, you had alpha of 2% because your beta only predicted a return of Six percent, and this this is what people mean when they talk about risk-adjusted return. Yes, that's exactly right. You're adjusting your portfolio for the risk of what are now called common factors, or easy way to think about things to be helpful is a factor is nothing more than a trait or characteristic uh, of a group of securities that hopefully adds explanatory power to understanding what's called this cross-section of returns of stocks. Now, that model, the CAPM, was the working model for about 30 years. But during that period, academics were going to work and they were finding a bunch of anomalies or mispricings that the model couldn't explain. In fact, if we just use a simple example, let's say, Tom, you had a group of 100 stocks and you earn 13% and I owned 100 different stocks, I got 10%. Cap M would be able to explain about two thirds of that difference in returns or two of the 3%, leaving a full one third of the variation unexplained. And that was one problem for the model. Uh, the other was, that the highest beta stocks actually had the worst returns uh, and they underperformed the market. So we had these anomalies. Academics went to work trying to figure out if they could improve the model. And over time, they added, uh, based on a paper by Gene Fama and Ken French, uh, probably the most cited paper in academics, the course section of expected returns, uh, they found that if you uh, added a size factor, so small stocks outperform large stocks after accounting for their higher beta, and value stocks, meaning stocks with low price to earnings, low price to book or cash flow, they also outperformed after accounting for their beta. 
And now the explanatory power of the model went up to the low 90%. So using that earlier example of 13 and 10, where the CAPM was only able to explain 2%, leaving 1% unexplained, meaning it could be your skill, it could be luck, or it could be some unexplained factors that hadn't been discovered. Now let's just round it to 90%. Now not 1% was unexplained, but now only 30 basis points, 90% of the three would be 2.7. And since most active funds charge a lot more than 30 basis points, and that's not even counting their implementation costs, obviously it doesn't leave much room for active managers to add value. Now, so the big issue here became this. Prior to the early 90s, an active manager could outperform the market simply by owning more small and value stocks uh, than the market and claim alpha, and they would be right. They were outperforming. Once Fama and French published their paper, and that was added to the literature and became the working horse model, that claim would be easily exposed as a lie, if you will, because anyone could have replicated those returns simply by owning all of the stocks with those characteristics. And companies like Vanguard and Dimensional Fund Advisors started coming out with index funds and asset class funds that in effect showed that their returns were well explained. So the alpha shrunk dramatically. Now, this went a long way to actually explaining the performance of Warren Buffett uh, because he was a value investor. Now it didn't go all the way, but it did explain a large part of his outperformance, but the academics weren't done yet. They eventually, they added momentum, which is fact that securities that have done well in the recent past tend to continue to do well. And so if you were an active manager and you were tilting your portfolio to these high momentum stocks and avoiding negative momentum stocks, you could claim alpha. But by 1998, when that was added to the model, you couldn't do that anymore. And then trying to really figure out Buffett's secret sauce, think of it as reverse engineering, uh, Robert Novi Marx uncovered, if you will, the secret sauce was really profitability, what eventually has been expanded into a quality factor. So companies not only profitable, but also tend to have less operating leverage, less uh, financial leverage, more stable earnings. If you owned a group of stocks with those characteristics, as well as buying cheap companies, Buffett's alpha virtually disappeared. Now it's really important to understand this takes nothing away from Buffett's accomplishments. He was, had discovered the secret sauce 50 years before the academics. But today, anyone using funds like ETFs, uh, multi-factor funds run by companies like Dimensional, Avantis, Bridgeway, BlackRock, and others, every investor, can invest the way Warren Buffett did, gaining exposure to the factors they want. And today we can explain, call it 95, 98% of active managers outperformance. And the fact is that 20 years ago, active managers, about 20% were beating their benchmarks. And today, uh, at least on a statistically significant basis, today that number is about 2% and that's before taxes. One of the reasons is all these what were once sources of alpha are now no longer there. They're just common traits that any investor using passive strategies can access for a lot lower costs and more tax efficiency likely. I think that the, the Buffett point is interesting. And I remember there's a book by a guy called Matt Hall called uh, Evidence-Based Investing uh, or The Evidence-Based Investor, which you yourself are mentioned in. And it talks about like, you guys were kind of going around the country trying to convince financial advisors and other financial prof professionals of the passive case for investing um, before it was so widely accepted. And then you it kind of said you always do get the uh, retort from someone that, well, if passive is so great, how, does, how do you explain Warren Buffett? And well, 
I guess I guess you can. Yeah, and the fact of the matter is, uh, over the last 15, 20 years, Buffett's uh, performance has been fully explained by these common factors, of, and you can compare his performance to funds like those of Dimensional and other value investors that have been employing this secret sauce and adding, not just buying cheap stocks, but buying cheap quality stocks. Uh, there's nothing any longer special about Buffett's performance. But again, I want to point out, it's really critical that to understand this takes nothing away from what Buffett accomplished before, let's say, 10 or 15 years ago. He figured this out uh, way before the academics, but it doesn't change the fact that the stocks, the clients in my firm and many others invest in are buying the same types of stocks now that Warren Buffett bought. Yeah. And there's a wonderful, or actually two papers, uh, one called uh, Buffett's Alpha and the other Betting Against Beta that show that Buffett's performance was well explained by these common factors. He did continue to add some alpha because he had some unique abilities that the average investor can't uh, access because he's got uh, the ability to have Goldman Sachs desperate for capital in the middle of the great financial crisis, pick up the phone and say, Warren, we'll give you a chance to buy this security. We could get it cheaper if we go on a roadshow for two weeks, but we want your impromptu your blessing, that'll help give confidence. And Buffett gets a great deal because his name meant a lot. You and I can't replicate that. But in terms of the publicly available securities, uh, his performance at Berkshire has been well explained by these common factors now. So also in the book, uh, you tell and then rebut the, the popular joke about the uh, efficient market believing economist and, and, the, and the money on the ground. So I was wondering if you could tell the joke and then uh, explain what's wrong with it. Yeah, well, the, the joke is goes uh, along that two economists are walking down the street. One of them sees a $20 bill there, and the economist says, uh, there can't be a $20 bill. The market's too efficient. Someone would have picked it up already. Well, that's a nice story that the active managers want and need you to believe. The more likely story is that Tom, you saw the $20 bill, you picked it up and got this great idea that this is a way to make your fortune. And uh, now you go buy a metal detector to head to the beach and find the equivalent of $20 bills, maybe lost rings and coins. And you know, 20 years later, we find you a bum on the street because you never found another $20 bill. You know, the market is not perfectly efficient. On a rare occasion, the market makes mispricings that active managers can exploit, but they are rare and when they do occur, the costs of trying to exploit them tend to exceed the benefits. And that's why we see in the regular uh, S&P, what is called uh, passive versus active scorecards, over any 10 year period, 90% plus of the active managers underperform even before taxes and there's no persistence in performance beyond the randomly expected meaning if you outperformed in one period it doesn't tell you if you're likely to outperform in the next and i would add this that the successful active management actually contains the seeds of its own destruction because the only way you can outperform is you have to look very different than the market. Uh, and the only way you could do that is if you run basically a small amount of money, because if you try to concentrate in just a few stocks with a huge amount of money, you're gonna drive market prices against yourself. Uh, that's called market impact costs. And that's one of the reasons why uh, because active managers are highly reluctant to turn off the ka-ching machine. They won't reject assets coming in. So the average individual investor looks at past success, assumes it was intelligence, not luck. Money piles in and then performance deteriorates. You cite a study in, in the book which uh, suggests that actually as markets become more passive uh, or more assets go into passive, 
that markets may become more efficient um, in, in terms of kind of increased uh, ability of short sellers to to cheaply lend stocks. Um, why don't you explain that in more depth? Well, there's a couple of things here uh, why that's true. But let's start off with the most simple idea. Uh, and I like to use sports analogies that can help people understand. So Roger Federer generally considered the greatest tennis player of all time. I believe it's still true that he had never lost a first round match in a Grand Slam tournament. Now he's playing against one of the other 128 best players in the world, and he still never lost a first round match. However, as he went on through a tournament, having to win six matches to win a Grand Slam, he, his percentage wins decline. Why is that happening? Because the competition is getting tougher. So in the second round, he may have won 98%. In the third round, 90%. In the fourth round, 75%, et cetera. Uh, and in the finals, maybe he won 60%, something like that. So how does that relate to active managers? So if we think 20 years ago that 90% of individuals were active and now that are active dollars and today that's maybe 40%, who are the people who have dropped out? Is it the ones who were beating the market or the ones who were underperforming? It seems logical to me, if you're beating the market, you're obviously gonna attribute that to skill and you'll keep playing. So the remaining players are the most skillful because the losers drop out. In other words, and the same thing is true of active mutual funds. The ones that get underperform, money leaves, eventually they get shut down, something like 7% of all active funds disappear every year. So those are the weaker players, they're gone, which means the remaining competition, just like Roger Federer's competition is getting tougher as he advances into each round in a grand slam. As we move forward and passive share increases, the remaining players left are the best of that group. So it makes it more and more difficult to win. That's the biggest thing. There's a, Think about it this way. In the 1950s, there were only about 100 mutual funds and almost no hedge funds. And even in that period, about 80% of active managers were underperforming. Now you got a lot more, 10,000. But one of the differences is the people who are competing today in these active funds, they're all trained PhDs in math and science, et cetera. Their competition today is much tougher than it ever was before. Uh, and so that's a problem. But think about if we continue this trend to passive investing and we end up with only 100 active managers, who are those 100 going to be? Well, they're going to be the Peter Lynch's and Warren Buffett's and whoever are the great managers in the future. And you'll be having to compete against them. So it's very tough if you take an extreme and it was only two and it's Peter Lynch against Warren Buffett, who's the sucker at the poker table? It's really hard to outperform when the competition keeps getting tougher and tougher. There's a great analogy in the book related to why there are no more 400 baseball hitters. It's despite the fact that athletes today in baseball are so much better athletes than they were uh, 1941 when Ted Williams was the last 400 hitter. It's because the competition has gotten tougher. So let me answer your question on this issue as you get more people being passive, uh, that actually makes the market more efficient in another way, which you alluded to. The biggest, the big lenders of security, which allows people to go short because you have to borrow a stock and sell it to get short, are institutions, not individuals. So as individuals abandon the game of active management, they're now moving their assets to mutual funds and passive strategies. That means there's more of the securities available are owned by people who are the lenders of securities. You increase that supply 
of lendable securities, that should make it cheaper and easier to go short, which enables shorts to express their view and prevents or at least minimizes the opportunity for stocks to get overvalued. Doesn't mean they can't be, but it certainly increases uh, the ability for shorts to operate because their, their cost to execute the trades go down the, the bigger the percentage of passive investing becomes. You made the point uh, very well about, I suppose you could call it a shrinking uh, number of victims for for fund managers to kind of be on the other side of the trade-off. And so kind of more professional money, it's harder to beat. Um, but obviously, I'm sure you've seen lots of the news about what seems to be a bit of a renaissance in in day trading um, and retail investing in individual stocks, particularly around the kind of Reddit um, stuff in the last few weeks. Does this perhaps represent a, a new growing pool of victims for active managers? Oh, so, yeah, um, I had no doubt that this is uh, likely to be the case. It's just a repeat of the late 90s uh, with the Federal Reserve, uh, sadly, in my view, repeating its mistake of keeping interest rates down way too long. I think obviously you want to drive rates way down in the short term when you have an economic recession, but if you keep them down, you get this financial suppressor and then you have less sophisticated investors who start to look for yield and because they're earning nothing on their savings account. So they end up buying dividend paying stocks and MLPs and REITs and junk bonds emerging market bonds, Bitcoin, anything else you, you want to think of, and they start to get a speculative wave, and then you get a bubble, and then they're chasing this recency. It always ends badly, and it's always the retail investors who take the brunt of it. What the people on Robinhood and these other sites or individual traders never stop to ask themselves is this, if I'm buying the stock, I'm making a bet that it will outperform the market and someone's on the other side of the trade because stocks aren't created out of thin air. And since institutions do about 90%, let's say of the trading, the person on the other side who's selling me that stock is likely to be, you know, someone like Renaissance Technology, Warren Buffett, someone who likely knows far more than I do about the stock because they're full-time engaged in that, they've got training. Why am I buying the stock if they're selling it? They never stop to ask that question because they don't think about, you know, if you can't identify the sucker at the poker table, it's likely you. Retail investors, all the studies done have shown, underperform the market, uh, and the worst performers are men because the testosterone factor makes them more more overconfident than women. Another thing that stuck out in your book, it, it was in the footnotes, is the Grossman-Stiglitz paradox. I was wondering if you could perhaps try and explain what, what this paradox is and, and what your view on it is. The most important thing is to think about it this way. Um, markets are highly efficient, but not perfectly so. Uh, they can't be perfectly so because then there would be no incentive for active managers to do any price discovery. So we need active managers. They actually play a very important societal role. Uh, it is their price discovery efforts that keep the market efficient. And that means capital gets allocated efficiently. But there are also limits to arbitrage uh, because of the high costs of shorting and the great risks as those who bet against GameStop, uh, they're right in the long term, uh, but they some of them lost billions in the short term because of the risk of shorting, which means unlimited losses. Uh, and the cost to borrow that stock may have been very expensive. And now you have a new gang that can gang up on you, these Robinhood investors who get got together and actually pooled about $20 billion to bet against these hedge funds who they knew because of public reporting requirements were massively short the stock. And if they could engineer a short squeeze, they could force them 
to come in and buy the stock, driving it even higher, giving them a chance to, you know, to uh, sell at a higher price. That, uh, so, so we need these limits to arbitrage exist. There are some mispricings that can happen, but not enough after all of the expenses of the effort to allow active managers in aggregate to outperform. What the average investor has to think about is, do I want to spend my time and effort trying to outperform people with far more resources and skill, or should I just accept market returns uh, in the risks that I'm, I want? If I want higher returns, maybe I invest in an emerging market index or an index of small value stocks or whatever risks you believe are right for you. Uh, and you get to enjoy your life more because I, for example, never spend a minute investigating individual stocks. I'd much rather use that time to read a book or play a game with my grandchildren. Uh, <laughs> so the quality of life goes up uh, as well. So that, that is the paradox. You can't really have a perfectly efficient market and there will always be some anomalies or mispricings, but it doesn't mean you should try to play that game to find them because the odds are great you're going to be a loser. Well, you're obviously a, a big believer in passive investing and, and the efficient market, et cetera. Um, so I was wondering what your uh, view is on the kind of growing trend of active ETFs. But just for our listeners' sake, active ETFs are, are obviously ETFs, but they have a, they're managed by a stock-picking fund manager, like your usual active fund or, or closed-end investment trust. Um, but they use the ETF wrapper. Um, so, so, Larry, what do you make of this trend? Mostly uh, not a good thing. Uh, however, it does... Uh, alleviate one of the big negatives for active investing for taxable investors. ETFs, at least as their law currently allows, are able to wash away most of the capital gains. And so it's more efficient to own uh, equities in taxable accounts in the ETF wrapper. So you don't get those distributions until you sell your uh, and pay the gains when you ultimately sell your investment. So that is a positive and one of the biggest costs and certainly is the largest cost typically for active investors in taxable accounts is taxes. So that minimizes that, uh, you know, that problem. Uh, now for non-taxable investors, it's irrelevant. In fact, ETFs should never basically be used by non-taxable investors because you'd rather own the mutual fund, which doesn't have the bid offer spread uh, or, and typically doesn't uh, include trading costs as well. That's a big issue that most people don't understand uh, is that ETFs not only have a bid offer spread, but it's almost a certainty uh, when you're trading in anything but the largest stocks or indexes like the S&P 500 where there's huge liquidity. When you're buying, you're likely to pay above the NAV and when you're selling, you'll pay below uh, and you're going to pay that bid offer spread because the person on the other side is a sophisticated institution. They know where the, the market is and you're not going to be scalping them, they'll be scalping you. It doesn't take away from the fact that even before taxes, active managers, the vast majority of them underperform, and that's not going to change. It will reduce, as I said, the negative drag of taxes. So if you insist on using active strategies uh, in taxable accounts, I'd rather see you in an ETF. But to me, that's still an illogical strategy because the odds uh, suggest you're likely to underperform. And it's highly likely that you will underperform. I mean, would it be correct in saying that you you prefer, say for someone wants to implement a passive strategy, you would suggest index funds over ETFs to do it in general? No, no. as I said, uh, if I'm going to be in a tax advantage account, there basically is no reason to own an ETF over a mutual fund, especially a case in the funds like uh, Avantis, which I own. Uh, their three of their funds are small value and international small value and an emerging market value fund. They offer both ETF and mutual fund versions. And if you're in 
a IRA in the US or non-taxable account, the mutual fund, given it has exactly the same cost, is a big advantage over the ETF. You're in a taxable account, uh, it, uh, uh, the advantage is likely to favor uh, the ETF for the reasons I gave, uh, but you also have to look at the cost. Sometimes the ETFs can be cheaper than a mutual fund, and then you have to look at how frequently it trades to get that benefit. But I would suggest if you're a taxable investor, you are generally going to be better off in the ETF version than in a mutual fund. The one exception might be if you're in a really small micro cap strategy, uh, I'm not even sure it's executable in ETF format because there's no way to stop cash inflows, which you can do with a mutual fund and micro cap strategies uh, have big problems if they start to try to manage too much money uh, because the market impact costs can go way up. Uh, and so I would have, and that's why I don't even think you see uh, many, if any, micro cap ETFs. And I certainly would avoid them if I were an investor. Uh, I should just point out for listeners that lots of the tax advantage of ETFs are in, uh, in US jurisdiction. There aren't such uh, tax advantage for ETFs compared to the mutual funds in, in the UK um, okay. without going into detail. I'll point out one thing, which I'm not making any prediction here, but the US government uh, is in desperate need of revenues especially with Biden's uh, ambitious uh, spending plans. And one target that they could easily go after is this whole tax advantage of ETFs is just form over structure. Uh, and they could say, you know, we're going to ban that and tax ETFs in exactly the same way we tax mutual funds. Uh, that's a possibility. Uh, yeah. and in fact, if I were the Biden administration, I recognize I need revenue. That's one way to go get it. So we spoke about uh, factors at the start, um, but I was wondering we could talk about them in a bit more depth quickly because obviously you have also co-authored a book called Your Complete Guide to Factor Investing. Um, I was wondering if we could go through kind of the, the four maybe, maybe main factors. So the most popular, in my view, is is value, or at least the most spoken about. So I wonder if you could explain what, what the value factor is and why it produces best returns historically. First of all, let's again define these things as factors or traits or characteristics. Value is certainly one of the most commonly used and value uh, can be defined in many different ways. Uh, this is where you get into the passive active debate and smart beta ETFs. You could define value as stocks that are cheap prices relative to book value, earnings, cash flow, sales, dividends, EBITDA to enterprise value, or many other uh, versions. And some fund families, which I think is the best way to do it, use multiple metrics to get a blend because over some periods, PE does best, some others price to cash flow does best. So you get a diversification benefit. That's the most popular one. Uh, in my book, we present for the value factor and for uh, seven or eight other factors. We present the academic evidence showing either risk-based or behavioral-based explanations for why that premium we think should persist. Uh, in the case of value, there are two explanations that have uh, a lot of support behind them. One is that value stocks are riskier. Their risks tend to show up perhaps in recessions because the companies have more fixed costs and they can't cut them when demand goes down. On top of that, they may have higher leverage. Combine those two, you get very risky companies, or it could be unseen risks, uh, like maybe being sued for climate risks or oil spills or whatever it might be uh, that you can't necessarily measure. But that's there's some reason they're trading cheap because people think they're risky. The other explanation is a behavioral one, which uh, makes the case that there are a group of stocks that have been persistently overvalued by investors 
and that over the long term they perform poorly. The most extreme example of them are what are called lottery stocks. Investors looking for the next Google, they buy any stock that has certain characteristics because of the bias called representativeness. So they're looking for the next Google and that had fast growing sales. So they look at any company with fast growing sales, maybe it also has fast growing investment and they say that's the next Google, they buy it. Well, here's one bit of data, small growth companies with high investment and low profitability over the long term of underperformed riskless treasury bills. But investors love them and they overpay for them persistently. And that's one of the reasons why growth in the long term underperforms value. And that can persist because it's so risky and can be expensive to short these stocks. Uh, and so these what are called limits to arbitrage prevent sophisticated investors from correcting pricing. So there you have your two theories. My own view, it's some of both. Uh, so uh, value investing does involve risk. It's not a free stop at uh, a free lunch, uh, but there may be a free stop at the dessert tray because of this behavioral problem with people overpaying for penny stocks, stocks in bankruptcy, and these small growth companies that have high investment and low profitability, the non-quality stocks. And we see this pattern over and over again in the late 90s. I think it was 19 and 20 were like two years when companies that lost money outperformed companies that made money. I mean, that's how insane these markets get. And that's a good sign of a bubble. And these eventually reverse uh, when those bubbles burst. Yeah, so obviously because value has underperformed, underperformed um, quite severely in the last decade. That's um, not really true. Um, oh, yeah? Um, it, it is true, but you have to dig through the data. So let me give you an example. Value uh, had, under, had outperformed dramatically through most of the 70s, 80s, 90s, <clears throat> until the mid to late 90s. And then it dramatically underperformed in the bubble and so by the end of March 2000, value had done so poorly since 98 that now looking back, value had underperformed over 1, 3, 5, 10, 15, and 20 years. One year later, value had now outperformed over 1, 3, 5, 10, 15, and 20 years. And I think we're seeing the same thing repeat. So value. Uh, I just looked at the data, small value dramatically outperformed large growth from 2000 through 07. Then it outperformed somewhat a little bit, a few percent uh, through October 16. And then it had the worst performance ever relative, even worse than 98. Uh, so in that period of three and a half years through March, uh, 20, I think 25th may have been the bottom or 23rd, uh, was that three and a half year period was so bad looking back value would underperform for one, three, five, 10, maybe 15 years. Now I'll point out as an example, a fund I happen to own, uh, cause I did some tax loss harvesting Avantis small value fund. I just checked. From the bottom till now, to March 23rd or 5th, it's up almost 150%, which is twice, more than twice what the S&P 500 is. So we think a small value premium might be 3% a year. It's gotten, let's call it 75% in not even 11 months. That's 50, that's, I don't know, that's uh, almost 20 years. <laughs> or more of a small value premium in 11 months. That's how fast these things can change. My own view is that's likely to continue because small value relative to the market is still trading at something like the 95th percentile uh, of historical relation. That's how big this bubble was and bubbles always burst. There's nothing new happening now, despite what you hear from many people. This is just an exact repeat of exactly what happened in the late 90s. 
exactly what happened in the 60s when we had the nifty 50 bubble and you had the Xeroxes and IBMs and others. And the same thing happened in the 20s, only they were then called RCA and Westinghouse and others. People get over-enthusiastic, bubbles happen. This time it's different. And the only thing that's different is investors never learn there from their history. Another factor that um, has historically outperformed over the last few years is, is seen as underperforming is size. So smaller companies historically at at higher returns, as you kind of mentioned already. Um, I was wondering if you explain what the size factor is, how it works, etc. To give everybody a definition, and I would urge you to pick up a copy of my fact, your complete guide to factor-based investing if you're interested. Factors are what are called long-short portfolios. The value factor is the return on cheap stocks. Stocks would say low PE ratios minus the return of stocks that have high PE ratios. The size factor is the return on small stocks minus the return on large stocks. And just like with value, these things go through what economists would call regime changes. Uh, There are periods that are totally unpredictable when value outperforms and then it switches. And there's no evidence that anyone can time these regime changes. And then there are periods when small will outperform and then there'll be periods when large outperforms. But the evidence is that over the very long term, small stocks outperform as if you exclude those lottery stocks Uh, you see a very significant size premium. But the size premium is polluted by these penny stocks, these small growth stocks with high investment and low profitability, which is why the funds I own, which are small cap passive strategies, screen them all out while an index fund might include them. That's why I don't own any index funds uh, because there are some negatives that can be avoided with better design. Uh, companies like Dimensional Fund Advisors, Bridgeway, Avantis, and BlackRock, and many others use the knowledge of financial history to design, call it smarter or better indices or universes that they choose their stocks from. And then the other three uh, very popular factors are momentum, growth, and quality. Uh, momentum and growth often seem to go together, um, at least have the last few years. Um, as long as you run through those. Growth is actually a negative factor, not a positive. It's the opposite of value. So momentum is the tendency of securities that have outperformed recently to continue to outperform yeah. recently. There are actually two forms of a m- momentum. So this could get a bit confusing. There's something called... Uh, time series momentum that's also known as trend following so that's i call it absolute momentum so you buy things that have been going up and you short things that are going down and that has a tendency to add value over time but it doesn't always work and it can it too can go through long periods of underperformance but over the long term it's actually had a very large premium as big or bigger than the equity risk premium before expenses anyway. The other momentum strategy is called cross-sectional or what I refer to as relative momentum. So if you have a group of stocks and they're all going down, uh, you would still go long the stocks that have done relatively the best. So you buy the ones that have gone down the least and you go short the ones that have gone down the most. Both forms of momentum have strong evidence in the literature. And by the way, size, value, momentum has evidence as we present in the book that they work in stocks, bonds, commodities, and currencies, which gives you confidence that it's not just the data mining outcome. The findings are extremely robust. They're persistent over long periods of time and they're pervasive all around the world. But they don't work all the time. They're just tendencies. And you must be prepared to accept long periods of underperformance. And I'll give you the best example. So people think, well, value is underperformed. So 
you know, that's bad and stuff. Well, market beta, which is the difference between the return of the market in the US anyway, minus the return of one month treasury bills. Over the long term, that premium has been 8% a year, but there are three periods of at least 13 years. This shocks most people when the S&P underperformed totally riskless treasury bills from 29 to 43, 15 years, 66 to 82, that's 17 years and 2000 through 09, that's 13. That's almost half of the known data we have. So what does that tell you? It tells you that there's risk in any strategy and that's why you wanna highly diversify, not put your eggs all in one basket, whether it's a value basket, a size basket, a momentum basket, a US market basket, you wanna globally diversify and own other unique risks. A final question, what do you see the big trends or, or themes in index funds, ETFs, passive investing that concern you or interest you? My concerns are really for the individual investor that they are notorious chasers of fads and trends. And so whatever's hot, they tend to buy at the worst times. A great example is someone just published a paper last year in 2020, when, when the S&P was going up, there were net inflows into safe government money market accounts. So they were getting it wrong. And when the S&P was falling, the reverse was true. So they got it wrong. The same thing is true about chasing whatever is the hot sector. And they end up watching what did well yesterday and buy at high prices. And then they watch it inevitably do poorly and sell at low prices. And they end up basically washing, rinsing, and repeating until they destroyed their financial net worth, or at least had a severely negative impact. The best thing to do is have a well thought out plan that is highly diversified across passive unique risks like size and value and quality or profitability, diversified around the globe, and making sure you always have a sufficient amount of safe bonds, not risky bonds that are sufficient to dampen the risk of your portfolio to an acceptable level. So you don't panic and sell when everyone else around you is losing your head or their head. Thanks, Larry. And thank you to everyone listening. If you liked what Larry had to say, I highly recommend you get hold of a copy of his newly republished book, The Incredible Shrinking Alpha. Please like and subscribe. And of course, you can find loads more investment insights and ideas at ii.co.uk. I'll be back next month for another episode of the ECF show. Bye for now.